This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. Learn more about their momentum at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This podcast contains explicit language. We just wanted to let you know. So are we still living in, like, Beyonce's country or what? The conversation seems to never stop when it comes to her, which is a good thing. Don't come after me, Hive. This ain't Texas. Ain't no holding. Yeah, and I hesitate to say anything about Beyonce, Taylor Swift, or maybe even Nicki Minaj on mic. <laughs> it just feels like one false move and uh, the stands are at your door. I mean, we're always in Beyonce's world, but, um, you know, she's she's chosen a new way to, to shape that world in her image lately. Are you thinking about what is country music? A little bit. Have you been uh, figuring out your own amendments to the Yeehaw agenda? Well, I mean, I'm most interested to hear about this from you because you're down there in in Nashville all the time with, uh, you know, at the heart of things. Are you hearing anything uh, at the street level about um, what those new Beyonce songs mean for for, for that world? Oh, definitely. My world is a flutter. I mean, everybody is so excited, so thrilled that Beyonce made this intervention, essentially, right? But Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I think a lot of people who've been working a long time to make country more representative of what America genuinely is or questioning what it means for a superstar to come in in her big boots sure. and supposedly change things, you yeah. know? Yeah, I think there's always a little bit of uh, unease when uh, somebody who's, you know, already gone Hollywood comes in and, you know, mingles with the people in that way. But you know what? I realize that here we are letting Beyonce's big boots lead us into a, another rabbit hole or the same yeah. old rabbit hole. And I just want to say, hey, let's talk about some albums that are out this week. I'm Ann Powers, NPR Music, critic and correspondent. I'm here with Daoud Tyler Amin. It's uh, February 23rd, and we have some fantastic music to talk about this week, including one of my very favorite artists, Alinda Sagara. Records under the name Hooray for the Riff Raff, and we're going to start with their new album, The Past is Still Alive. You don't have to die if you don't want to die. You could take it all back in the nick of time. Maybe even be a good friend of mine. Baby, I Dude, it's a good day for me anytime something new comes from Melinda Cigara. This is You've an artist. following this artist very closely for a long time. Every time I hear about a new Riff Raff record, I always hear about it from you. Can I share my uh, origin story with Melinda? Do it, please. <laughs> 
So I remember so vividly uh, standing in my dining room in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where I was living at the time and opening a package. This was 2012, I think, and it had uh, an album in it called Look Out Mama and a note from the person who was Hooray for the Riffraff's manager saying, I heard you liked the Alabama Shakes. I heard you were into Brittany Howard. I think you'd like this too. And I looked at this album. It had an f- intriguing cover, a picture of uh, a young soldier. And I put on the CD. This is how long ago it was, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> I remember CD promos. Look at mama. And this voice came out of my speakers. Look at daddy. I'm gonna roll. And I felt like suddenly I had been taken up in an embrace. And I felt like, wow, there, here is a voice. This, this is a young person. This is someone. How does this person have so much wisdom in their voice? That was 2012. And now it's 2024. And Alinda has grown and developed so much over the years, released many albums. And this new one, The Past is Still Alive, Well, I think it was Lindsay Zolads in her piece in the New York Times was quoting someone who said, you know, it's so exciting to see someone who's, you know, late 30s, been going at it for a long time and really is at the top of their game. And that's what I hear on this record. Hold my head like a live wire. Duck quick now, I hear gunfire. Caught somewhere in the space between. Do you love me? Do you love me? Everything is advancing I love to see you out dancing There's women up in the mountains We could be up there if we could get up there Say goodbye to America I wanna see it dissolve I can't be a poster boy for the great American fall Now I'm out and I'm prowling Make me wanna start growling You will live forever as this bombshell in my mind Where do we find Alinda when we hear them on this record? Because as I understand it, there are some stories from their past, hence the title, that they maybe haven't told explicitly on record before. Is that right? I'm so glad that you asked that question, because I was re-immersing in Alinda's catalog to prepare for our little talk today and listening to that first record, Look Out Mama, returning to Small Town Heroes and The Navigator, all these other great records they've made and thinking about how, yes, their sound has evolved and they have perfected their songwriting. But from the beginning, there were certain key elements in what Sagara does as a songwriter and the sound of the project, the sound of the band, Hooray for the Riffraff. So, where is Alinda? I mean, Alinda's always on the road, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and this is another road record in a sense, but it's looking back on a road, you know, I'm going to make a really sick comparison that I'm going to regret immediately. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, go <laughs> I'm gonna say this is uh, Hooray for the Riffraff's Hajira. This is that high point, that Joni Mitchell high point. Wow. You know, that that's a big one. It also Throwing reminds the gauntlet me, down. I know, I'm pantheoning out, but it also reminds me of Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. But mm-hmm. in both cases with those legendary songwriters, these were women who had reached a point, they were reflecting on their own history, and they were creating 
a work that holds together cohesively to tell their story as if it were kind of a mythic story. And I think that's what happens here. Yeah, I'm thinking about the sort of title track, the song Snake Plant, which has the past still alive in, uh, in, in parentheses, which has these long strings of one-liners that are extremely visual and really sort of paint a picture of a lifestyle in incredible detail. But uh, there's a string of lines that goes, campfire on the super fun site. Campfire on the super fun site. Garbage island fucking in the moonlight. Play my song for the devil freaks. And we go shoplifting when it's time to eat I play my song for the barrel of freaks. And we go shoplifting when it's time to eat. That's a whole short story right there. I know, and that's, you know, that is also autobiography, it's memoir. I mean, famously, Alinda, in their early years, was a train hopper. Mm-hmm. Was kind of a, you know, a street kid. Also talks about eating from the garbage, mm-hmm. which, of course, uh, dumpster diving is a big practice of certain kinds of street kids in New Orleans where they live and all around the country. But there's a lot of love, you know, the way they look back on these scenes, even as they kind of paint the darker side, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, my relationship to this artist has always been maybe like a, you know, standing at a little bit of a remove, always sort of appreciating the talent and the imagination. Wait, I got to stop you right there before you get into your big thought, because I have a I really, I have a question about this. Please. When I told you that story about being embraced by their voice, I mean, my life is not really like Alinda Cigars that much. I'm a white woman of a certain mm-hmm. age who came from... And the I never leave Earth. the house, so I'm with you. <laughs> And they are a, you know, person of Puerto Rican descent who grew up in New York and whatever. We're very different. But I had such a strong identification with her. Mm-hmm. So uh, where here's two people, you and me, having a talk about this record that you have a totally different experience. What does it feel like to not have that heart connection so intensely but listen to this music and appreciate it? I mean, I'm a New York City kid, so it's funny to think about having moved through some of the same spaces as this person. But, uh, you know, I think I also, in my upbringing and in my adolescence, like, knew a lot of people who just were into, like, the wildest things and seemed by, you know, 16 to have lived a dozen lifetimes and just had, you know, the craziest stories. And some of it is just me being like a little bit of an indoor kid and not really understanding that like in the 1990s, like, you know, New York hip hop was going down and like the New Yorkian cafe was like a couple of blocks from my house. Like all of this was sort of like passing me by and I had to learn about a lot of it after the fact. And this record, you know, we do get those stories. Like you quoted some lyrics, I'll quote from Vetiver. Uh, when they sing Drinking at the Stonewall, that would be the famous mm-hmm. bar that you know that launched uh, the riot that began the modern version of queer liberation. Uh, Kissing in the dark, you know the feeling she broke my heart, but at least I got a shower in. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Drinking at the Stonewall, tripping ceiling. Kissing in the dark, you know. There are moments uh, on this record that are examples of the kinds of things that I have responded to in Hooray for the Riff Raff records before. Like, Buffalo pulls Mm. this sort of hypnosis through repetition trick, where the words that make up the hook 
are sort of denatured and pulled apart from their meaning because of how you hear them and how much you hear it. And it, it's, you know, it sort of all becomes part of texture. And I yelled and I didn't know the reason, but I knew that you'd understand. Two weeks just to catch the buffalo, two weeks just to catch the buffalo. Some things take time, I know they do. Some things take time, I know they do. I hope our time will never go. I hope our time will never go. Two weeks just to catch the buffalo. Two weeks just to catch the buffalo. Will we go? Well, I just want to say I love that you mentioned uh, the repetition in, in Alinda Cigar's songwriting because that's very intentional. It's almost like. Um, an incantation quality. And the way they've grounded their music in ballads and blues over the years, those forms, and really found a way to make those forms personal, I I think it all comes to fruition on this record. And the songs we've talked about all have that quality. And, you know, it's the reason I've been thinking of this question of, like, what makes a song grab you? What makes a song stay in Uh your head? Uh, and uh-huh. I mean, I feel like Alinda has found the the quality in their own creativity to do that. But it kind of connects to every album we're talking about this week. Yeah, I think so. I mean, speaking of Alinda, somebody who has, you know, traveled the, the length and breadth of the United States, maybe we should spend a minute on somebody whose backstory and whose parentage is similarly varied, but uh, from the other side of the Atlantic. Who are we talking about? Well, let's talk about Erica de Cassier, a Portugal-born, Copenhagen-based singer and songwriter and producer whose parentage is Belgian and Cape Verdean. And the reason why the name might sound familiar to certain folks is that they had a strong hand in the last New Jeans EP, you know, really kind of fun, adventurous K-pop group who hit her up and said, hey, we're doing a songwriting session in Copenhagen. Do you want to come? And wound up writing, I don't know, maybe like four of those six songs. and Including and, Super Shy. Yeah. One of the biggest K-pop songs of the past few years. Mm-hmm. I felt it on my body so deep. Looked at me wearing a white tee. Shows you off in a nice way. And when I talk to you, you hear what I say. I walk by you and so really think they do, but they don't know. Time when you goes by too fast. Words that I to your point about what makes a song feel complete, what makes a song a song, and what makes it feel memorable, I was constantly struck listening to this record about how there were elements, production elements, songwriting elements, that I recognized that were part of existing traditions, but that felt totally like scrambled and jostled around. You know, so the song Lucky is a great example. Produced a little bit differently, this could be a real 90s R&B jam. Like the melody has that bounce to it, the sound of the keys, but it really feels like, you know, you went into a 90s R&B session and just like messed with all the faders real quick. And it was just like, okay, let's start from here. <laughs> right. Like there's a real 
playfulness to de Cassier's compositional style. My favorite song on the record, it's, uh, well, I love a song with an onomatopoeic title, mm-hmm. like, you know, Yeah by Usher or Tweet's song, Oops. Mm-hmm. This one is called Ooh. <laughs> What you hear there is sort of a a conscious deconstruction of a known production style. The hook has this stacked harmony Mm -hmm. where you would imagine on paper it would feel really lush, but it sounds like one of the vocal layers is turned way up and it's the one that's on this sort of droney middle note. So instead of sounding lush, it has this weird kind of creepy like robotic feeling. And to your point about onomatopoeia, there are these vocal ad-libs, these non-verbal ooh and uh sounds, but they feel really yeah. disembodied. Like the baby squeal in Are You That Somebody? Or, exactly. Or the dilemma has that, you know. And <laughs> right. you hear those touches, um, you know, the way that that usually goes is that those elements are selected, they are EQ'd a specific way, and they are really integrated into the beat. And you just start to think of them as just like another piece of percussion. Whereas in this song, they feel very disembodied, and they kind of pop out of the beat instead of feeling integrated into it, such that like you can hear the word ooh almost spelled out every time. You know, back to our question of what makes a song itself. Let, maybe that's the best way to say it. Not what makes a song a song, but what makes a song itself mm. in a philosophical sense or an ontological sense. That gets me back to thinking about the way these songs were composed and how, you know, Linda Segarra starts with the guitar, starts with their own unprocessed voice. Whereas I love what you're saying about how Erica de Cassier kind of starts nowhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, starts in in sort of unreal space, right? Exactly. I mean, this is this exactly. is the question with a lot of like electronic music, right? Yeah. Is that you know there's this traditional idea of songwriting and composition as having sort of a, a pure form where it's just voice and guitar, or it's just voice and piano, and that's the you know platonic ideal of the thing. And then you know when you decide to produce things with a band or arrange things, you know, in different ways, then all of that is is sort of ornamental. Yeah. Whereas with electronic music, with dance music, production, arrangement, composition, instrumentation, all of these things kind of get blurred together. Yeah. And a song can start with a sample. It can start with a hook. You know, it, it feels like it's much more rarely somebody just sitting down with an acoustic guitar and banging out two verses, a chorus, and a bridge, and, you know, and then building up from there. Right. One more song I, I, I want to shout out since we're on this topic is the song Home Alone, hmm. which, again, to me, it feels like you went into like a Neptune's like production session or, you know, like an early 2000s, you know, Britney or, or NSYNC uh, session, found the like sound effects, like ear candy track, right. grabbed just that right. and said, okay, can we build a song around just this? Two, me, I got none to do, but I can think of one thing or two. I'm 
there are a few kind of conventional ballads. There's one called The Princess in which uh, de Cassier is, is waxing autobiographical about her own attempts to be the kind of woman she wants to be, be the kind of artist she wants to be. But there's also My Day Off, which again does what you're saying. It is a ballad and it is kind of introspective, but it's also like total cyborg sci-fi. Yeah, it's like they scooped the middle out right. of it. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's got this heavy groove and then like, you know, and the mids are kind of missing. Exactly. And it has business like it's yours is the hook, yeah. which is like, I, I know what she means. And she said it with fewer words than I could. Business like it's yours, all up in my business like it's yours. So that's Erica de Cassier. Her new album is called Still. I'm Ann Powers. I'm here with Daoud, Tyler, Amin, and we are talking about new music because it's New Music Friday, and we're just checking out the best sounds that are out this week. We're going to take a short break, and we'll have more for you when we get back. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. We want to tell you about a new offering we have here at NPR. It's called NPR Music Plus. NPR Music Plus is a new way to support our work and public radio. When you sign up, you can get access to a special feed of this show, All Songs Considered, where you can listen to all of our episodes sponsor-free. No breaks. You also get to listen to our sister show, Alt Latino, sponsor-free. Now, nothing is changing about our regular show, but NPR Music Plus is just another way to show your support of public media and get some extra perks. So go sign up. You can find out more at plus.npr.org slash NPR Music or search for NPR Music in Apple Podcasts. I'm Ann Powers, and I'm hanging out with Daoud, Tyler, and Mean. We are talking about some of our favorite new albums out this week, and we have another album from a stalwart presence on the indie scene. This is from the band Real Estate. Their new album is called Daniel. Let's hear a little bit of the song Haunted World. There is no rest, there is no sleep. Oh 
Dowd, I want to start by directing our attention to a lyric in that song because I think it's so hilarious when artists write songs about writing the song that they mm-hmm. are singing, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like pointing directly at themselves. So there's this verse that says, an unfamiliar place with a familiar song, got nowhere else to be, no turn you make is wrong. And I feel like that is just totally about making this record. Yeah, I can hear that. I mean, I'll see you in Rays with the hook of that song, mm. which is, the sun is shining through the trees, this haunted world is killing me, <laughs> which is sort of a distillation of the whole real estate aesthetic. The sun is shining through the trees, this haunted world is killing me. It's this picture of a kind of sun-kissed, low-key suburban life, but there's always something a little sad about it, too. I mean, Real Estate became a beloved band for their kind of vibey, tony, washy guitars, the, the way you could, as you're saying, like just kind of immerse or surf on this music. But I'm interested in this idea that there's always something below the surface that's about to bite your foot. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, we should say, like, when Real Estate's first record came out in 2009, I think, that that first self-titled record, it was a vibey era. You know, a a lot (laughs) of the, especially the the Northeastern ones in Brooklyn, in Philly, Real Estate was from New Jersey. Mm -hmm. You know, they were leaning hard on the reverb and the delay and were really into having all of the sounds kind of like mush together. I got to ask you a question right now. Like, Please. So why is this not shoegazing? Because isn't that exactly what shoegaze is and does? Well, uh, uh, that's a good question. I, don't, I mean... Shoegaze is British. Is that why, you know? Uh, sort of. I mean, you know, maybe British aligned. I think part of it is shoegaze is a little bit less hook-oriented and a little less riff-oriented to me. Whereas with real estate, a a band like that, you could always pick out the riffs, even in the beginning, even when, you know, they were awash in time-based effects. But I feel so struck by the difference between the lo-fi reverb of their first record, which was smack in the middle of, like, the blog days. And what they first found on their second record, Hmm. Days, which feels like it kind of set them on the path that they're still on now. Interesting. That record really sort of tightened up the corners of things, you know, maybe eased off the delay pedal a little bit and uh, seemed interested in finding something that struck the same mood but a little bit more cleanly. And now, to hear this record, I mean, this really feels like a quantum leap. And I'm curious for your take on this because... They're a little bit cute about it in the band bio, you know, in terms of identifying the Daniel, but I have a feeling you know who that Daniel is. Yes, it's Nashville producer Daniel Tashin, uh, who people might know, especially from his work with Casey Musgraves. He worked on those mm-hmm. breakthrough records with Casey. But, you know, he's a guy, I, I think much earlier in this conversation, Dowd, we were talking about, are things changing in Nashville? And not in the same way that Beyonce's new turn toward country is changing Nashville, in a different way, Daniel Tashin and uh, other producers here, like Dan's sometime partner, Ian Fitchuk, also a guy named Joe Pasapia, who used to be in a band called Guster. These producers have really helped the Nashville music community step away from the twang, step away from all the corny cliches of both country mm-hmm. and Americana, and mm-hmm. find a way to connect the best of 
what Nashville has to offer, like the amazing musicianship here, the studio artistry with a, a broader definition of pop. So Daniel Tashin had a band called the Silver Seas, which was just a great pop rock band before he ever became a famous producer. And I think he matches really well with Martin Courtney, the main guy in real estate and with the band uh-huh. in general in terms of knowing how to create a tone, an environment that is really alluring while also emphasizing those hooks that you talk about and put in the words first, you know, like we can really hear the words on this record. Totally. Yeah. If if that blog rock era could sometimes be accused of making the sound at least as important as the song, if not more so, this feels like flipping the ratio a little bit, which is no shade to those older records. But I'm really amazed by the the tonal balance on this record where every single sound you can pick out, you can yes. decide to listen to just that, and you can also step back and, and listen to how they all work together. The drum production, they have a newish drummer, Sammy Niss, mm-hmm. uh, and the drum production is just like so chewy. It really suits the playing. With the, and the playing's very restrained, but it has you know, all these fun flammed fills and little ghost notes and, and buzz rolls. Alex Bleeker, who's the other like co-founder since they've had some lineup changes, um, but Alex Bleeker, the bassist, is like a really steady hand, uh, and the bass tone is, is really wonderful on this. And their lead guitar player, Julian Lynch, has a pretty distinct style from what you hear on the early records. He, he joined the band in like the mid-2010s, I think. Mm. The lead parts here are not super forward in the mix, and they're not really written to be like hooky riffs. Right. But it's more like they kind of dance around the melody. And, um, and the way that they're recorded, you can hear them sort of just sort of flitting around the corners of the mix like, uh, like Tinkerbell. <laughs> All of those elements within the sound serve the lyrics so well, you know? I think these are very well-composed lyrics. They are poetic, but they also, they're not pretentious. I don't know, like he earns, Martin Courtney earns his metaphors, and some of the metaphors are just beautiful. Like in the very first song, somebody knew, it starts with the phrase, it never ends inside the painted egg is another egg. Now, I mean, on mm-hmm. one level, that's just time is a flat circle, right? <laughs> you know, sure. it's it's some corny shit from Russ Cole, uh, you know, very true detective. But on another level, what makes it work is the sound itself becomes that painted egg, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I like. No. I. It's. I. 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 I love how you said that. It's, did you um, take? Did you? Did you ingest your edible before we had this talk, Dave? Because if you did, you would know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um. I mean, it was just a protein bar. I guess it was technically <laughs> edible. Um. There are a lot of bands from that era that just like could not find their footing after that kind of stopped being the sound of indie rock slash pop and after you know pop and indie rock you know started to become less and less distinct and all of the rest of that and this is a band that's just like really taken their time to figure out what they want to do it doesn't mean that they've you know waited a long time between records they've been pretty consistent and pretty prolific yeah but you can hear 
just a general sort of reaching toward like, what is the next thing that we're going to do that's actually going to be fun, that's actually going to feel interesting and, and worth doing together? And you don't really wonder too much about the question we've been asking of what makes this, this band songs themselves, because it is so consistent without being boring. And it also connects to other moments in, in indie pop, right? Like connects both to sort of the classic power pop era. I think of bands like The Shoes or Bram Tchaikovsky, and then mm-hmm. also to other great songwriter-driven bands with big sounds like The Go-Betweens, you know? Sure, yeah. And there's a little bit of a, a sense of humor to it. Yeah. Even if the humor's a little dark. Yeah. Actually, before we move on, I have to shout this out. If anybody hasn't seen the video for Water Underground, a single from this record, it is set in the world of The Adventures of Pete and Pete, mm-hmm. the Nickelodeon show, which was sort of an, an alt-rock touchstone for uh, a lot of millennials who were maybe too young at the time to know who any of the bands that cameoed on that show were um, or had their music featured on it. Also kind of an early iteration of the the, the twee aesthetic or the brilliantly cute aesthetic. It's just, yeah, you know, creates this magical world of totally. childhood. Anyway, had to had to shout that, that out. No, but <laughs> yeah, and uh, they, they got the, the two original Pete and Pete actors to, to act in it. It's, uh, it's, it's really sweet. one more record to talk about and again my longevity is serving me in this case we're going to talk about mary timoney's new solo album her first in 15 years it's called untame the tiger and here is a little bit of the song no thirds That was a bit of No Thirds from Untame the Tiger by Mary Timoney. And Dowd, we had a little pregame chat about this record and this artist, and it turns out that you and I have different entry points into her career. It's true. My experience listening to her actively in real time begins with uh, Wild Flag, her band with Carrie Brownstein and Janet Weiss from Slater Kinney and uh, Rebecca Cole from The Minders. God, I remember that being such an exciting moment. Oh my God, super group. Like, yeah, it's just like, you know, uh, it's like the Avengers that just showed up. <laughs> um, or the Powerpuff and, Girls. Uh, yeah, yes, <laughs> good call. And before that, I'd obviously heard about her. I'd heard about Helium. I'm pretty sure I saw the video for Pat's Trick on Beavis and Butthead. Oh, yes, which, yes. Uh, Beavis and Butthead was my first exposure to a lot of things. Uh, that take I think it where about. you can get it, man. <laughs> yeah, the first time I heard Weezer, first time I heard like PJ Harvey probably. Wow. I saw 
Wild Flag on that tour, and I was like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. this is somebody I should be paying attention to. I, I need to do a little homework. And were you interested in her as a guitarist then? That was what was drawn you in? or I, I was, which was surprising to me because I've never cared that much about like guitar heroes. Uh-huh. Like I, I, it's, I've appreciated guitar as like, uh, you know, as, as an arrangement tool and like a riff tool. But, you know, when, you know, Rolling Stone or whatever would do their list of like the 500 greatest guitarists, I would always kind of be like, uh, you know, uh, this is fine. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, this, but yeah, to witness her playing, getting to see her live and having that be the entry point was like, I, th- I think that was a big deal because it is not the thing that you think of necessarily when you think of really like accomplished, distinguished guitarists. She's not a, sh- a shredder really, right. although she totally has like that level of technical ability. Right. Her parts are sort of like inside out and upside down and um and that carried through her band x hex right and um she plays bass in a pretty cool post-hardcore band now called hammered hulls right um but i'm so curious about your first impressions of her when she emerged in the 90s because even though the music was like in the air i, I totally missed it so as somebody who was covering music at the time like what did you think when she showed up wow well um and and you know mary if you're listening we, we will get back to your new record too but we're just uh we're celebrating your whole being mary because it's you true. really are such a beautiful part of what indie music is i just want to send that out when i first heard helium I really felt like I had never heard anything like this before. And uh, it was her guitar playing. I don't want to get too gender essentialist about this because I, uh-huh. I, I came in thinking, oh, well, the thing that made Helium special was this woman and her point of view, you know, and her, it, how different it is from the way that men approached indie rock at the time. Maybe more non-linear. Maybe, uh, you know, she was known for alternate tunings. Maybe more um, upside down. The way that a woman's perspective in indie rock could feel a little upside down because it was such mm. a uh, a male-dominated feel back then. But, you know, I don't know. I, I, I kind of think I'm going to downplay that because there was Pavement, and Pavement was doing something very similar in a sense, taking apart the song structure and putting it back together, echoing what we said about Erica de Kassir, but in a completely different context. Yeah. I think that's what makes her songwriting Exciting. The musical side of her songwriting, exciting. It feels like a, a game of Jenga or something. It's like the pieces are always reassembling in a really cool, interesting way. Yeah, and some of that is, I mean, we haven't mentioned her voice. I wonder what to even call her vocal style. <sighs> Monotone is wrong. No. It, Deadpan that, that is sounds, wrong. That sounds really backhanded. Deadpan is a, a hair closer, but also feels <laughs> maybe not quite there. Yeah, it, um, it's not right. I just want to quote a line uh, from Mary Timoney's song, Not the Only One, which is on this record, Untame the Tiger, where she says, Please say to me, I am the one who set you free. When the comet hit the world, I saw you hanging out with all those girls. The world. I saw you hanging out with all those girls. You're not the only one. 
but I just love that kind of mix of the absolutely mythic dystopian and totally quotidian heartbreak, you know, totally mm-hmm. just like peevish heartbreak, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's something in that humor of that that really gets me. It reminds me of writers like um, Patricia Lockwood or Sheila Hetty, like these these metafictional writers of our time, women. Um, I don't know. What about this? Is she an odd woman? You know, <laughs> that that phrase odd women was often used uh, in the modernist era to talk about women who were just a little too smart, a little too ar- artistic, a little too unique to fit in. And mm-hmm. I think maybe that's what Mary Timothy is. She's an odd woman. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, she she seems to be somebody who really enjoys playing in bands. Yes. It's it's sort of it, it's funny that like, you know, the, the, the names of her most famous bands are are maybe more famous than That's true. her name as a as as a solo artist. That's true. Although um, although just quick interjection, she made some great solo records in the in the in the early 2000s. Very fun, Fractured Fairy Tales. Including one called X Hex, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's kind of yeah, that's sort of it's like the Kathleen Hanna thing exactly. where it's like, it's like she got done with her 90s band, she retreated to do, you know, her Julie Ruin project and then Julie Ruin became a band. Exactly. Um exactly. But Mary, you know, Mary Timoney's been candid about the fact that she went through a lot in in the past couple of years. Yes. Uh, in, yeah. in the run-up to, to making this record. Right. There was the end of a long relationship, mm. the illnesses and eventual passing of both of her parents, who she, you know, was caring for. It feels like it can't mean nothing that after 15 years, um, she would want to put her own name uh, uh, and her own face on the cover of a record yeah. uh, after having gone through all of that. The songs do wax autobiographical in that you can hear references to uh, the breakup she went through. There's a song called Don't Disappear, which anyone who has a, an ailing parent will wonder if that's sort of what she's referring to. But circling all the way back to Hooray for the Riff Raff, another record that shows the mark of the loss of a parent, Alinda Cigar's father, to whom the record is dedicated. Here we have these two albums that wrestle with grief, wrestle with the kind of lostness you can feel uh, when these major life events have happened. But uh-huh. in like in totally different ways, you know? Yeah. Feel the first rays of the sun Shine on I'm glad you mentioned Don't Disappear. That that song really jumped out to me. It feels musically it feels a little bit like Hot Rock era Slater Kinney. Oh nice. That's a great um, comparison. Love it. But that's such an unexpected match for her voice because you think about the singers in Slater Kinney and they sing, there's so much like kind of tension and urgency like right on the surface uh, uh, of those voices. And uh, when she jumps in here, it's like we've said, it's there's she sings like almost totally without vibrato. Yeah. She doubles herself really, you know, heavily in a way that you can hear. And the vocals are really forward in the mix all over the record. And yet something about the affect of her singing makes it so that if you want to absorb the lyrics in real time, you really have to lean in. Yeah. You have to kind of focus on them. Yeah. I love a record that makes me work just a little bit, you know, that may, that it will not be background. Mary Timoney is never background. Never. 
And on that note, let's take a little break. We've hit many of our favorite records, but there's so much more music out there. So when we get back, we're going to do our lightning round. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. I'm Ann Powers with NPR Music, and I'm back with Daoud Tyler Amin, and we've been having a lot of fun talking about the new music coming out this week. We have some more albums to mention. It's time for a quick roundup of other music out today, February 23rd. The blog rock icons MGMT have not put out an album since 2018. Their new one, Loss of Life, includes a rare collaboration for the band with Christine and the Queens. Street, the real heads trying to keep it low. Saw you move to the beat, and I was blown away. Saw you need to know. Maybe I mistook pure distraction for a flash of love. You know Letitia Sadie's voice if you've ever chilled out anywhere in any context. She was the singer of Stereo Lab champions of the sophisticated, groovy electronic pop scene. Yes, there was a whole scene in the 1990s. Her new album, Rooting for Love, will give you some of those old vibes. One of the greatest singers I've ever seen live is the Afro-Cuban singer Daime Aracena, and I'm very excited to say she has a new album out called Alchemy. It's her first album in five years, following a string of singles. She recorded in Puerto Rico with producer Eduardo Cabra of Calle Trece. And a couple EPs out this week from artists building devoted audiences in fertile corners of the music world. The nine-piece K-pop group Twice is putting out the latest in its running series of mini-albums. It's called With Youth. That's capital Y-O-U. Uh, and I believe this is our colleague Hazel Sills' K-pop troupe of choice. Shame there's a, uh-huh. no way to fact check that. Uh, and the progressive pop singer and producer Glaive, who is sometimes categorized as hyperpop, sometimes emo rap, sometimes melodic trap, has a seven-song EP called A Bit of a Mad One. Fun as you 
And finally, there are two albums by really important artists who we have lost. Emahoy Sege Mariam Gebru died on March 26, 2023. She was 99 years old, and she had recently become a musical phenomenon. She was a nun born in Ethiopia, a singer and pianist who rarely performed, but if, if you've heard these records, you were brought totally into her world. Her music is just enchanting. <laughs> There's a new posthumous record. It's called Souvenirs. It collects intimate recordings made between 1977 and 1985, and it's never been widely available until today. And finally, uh, a special release for me. There's a Nashville band called Those Darlings. When I moved to Nashville back in the early 2010s, they were uh, local favorites, absolutely beloved. Um, especially their lead singer, Jesse Zazu. Jesse was a close friend of my family, and she died far too young at age 28 of ovarian cancer. And man, if anybody embodied the spirit of living life and being not afraid, I mean, that was her motto, ain't afraid, it was Jesse. And in the last years of her life, she and those darlings guitarist Linwood Regensburg we're still working together to make music. And I just have to thank Linwood so much for assembling these tracks that he and Jesse made at the end of her life. The record's called Quilt Floor, and they're calling the band Mama Zoo. Jesse, you will live forever for me. I was really taken with this, and if I could point people to two songs in particular, Make a Joke. Make a joke, make a joke about me. Um, does one of my favorite things vocally, which I guess you could call like cheer squad core. Like if you think of like Girlfriend by Avril Lavigne or like Mickey by Tony Basil, I guess is the obvious one. But it's like sort of rhythmic chanting and uh, really tightly doubled and this small range of notes. But, um, you know, but it's also, I mean, the lyrics are actually quite angry about some of the more like insidious ways that patriarchy functions. And then Made of Dreams, that's the one that made me choke up a little. That's a, a song about you know, future forestalled. Um, and uh, it says, I used to think that you were made out of dreams. Maybe you just ain't made for me. That one got me. I'm so glad this music means something to you, Diode. You know, when you're when you know an artist, it, 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 the music's going to resonate with you. But I always knew Jesse's voice could reach a larger audience. And so I really hope that, that this record finds her new fans. And then they go back and listen to Those Darlings. Great band, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Sarah. This was such a fun conversation. Thanks, Anne. Back at you. I appreciate you so much. <laughs> I feel like we connected some dots, you know? Uh, I, I think so. I think, yeah, I think we solved music. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think we know <laughs> what makes a song itself, and we also were able to point people to a lot of great music. So 
Thanks to everyone who's found this podcast and listened. We invite feedback at allsongs at npr.org. If you like the show, please tell your friends, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and subscribe to our newsletter. I write it on Saturdays. It's npr.org backslash music newsletter. And please remember that if you want to listen to the show sponsor-free, you can support our work by joining NPR Music Plus. Go to plus.npr.org slash NPR Music to find out more or search for NPR Music and Apple Podcasts. This podcast was produced by Joaquin Kotler and Saraya Mohammed. We had editorial support from Jacob Gans. We'll be back next week. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Color Choice shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.